Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. What does the future look like? By melting business acumen and innovative technology, Deloitte can help you build the future only you can imagine. They can help engineer solutions for your business reality today and your vision for tomorrow to get you to a world where you don't just dream it, you build it. See how you can engineer advantage with Deloitte at Deloitte.com slash US slash engineering advantage. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Harvard Law professor and internet policy legend, Lawrence Lessig. Larry is a defining expert when it comes to free speech and the internet. He's taught law for more than 30 years at the University of Chicago, Stanford, and Harvard. He co-founded the Creative Commons in 2001, and he's published a dozen books since 1999, delving into the intersection of communications, money, the media, the internet, and democracy itself. Larry is a hero of mine. I have been reading him since I was in college, and so much of his work has directly shaped so much of my thinking. It was an honor to spend some time with him. But I gotta tell you, this episode is a little looser than usual. See, the Decoder crew was in Boston last week for the launch of Harvard's new Applied Social Media Lab which Larry is a part of. The launch event for the lab was a glitzy affair featuring a number of guest speakers, including former President Barack Obama, who was set to join Decoder and talk about how social media can actually benefit democracy and how we might build towards that goal. Unfortunately, President Obama had to drop out of the event due to an illness. We are working with his team on rescheduling that conversation, which we're excited to have for you in the future. Happily, Larry was available to fill in, and he was more than prepared to dive deep on the big issues that the lab was designed to address, and that I've been thinking about quite a bit lately. As you'll hear us say, there's a lot to unpack here. You'll hear us agree that the internet, at this moment in time, is absolutely flooded with misinformation, disinformation, and other really toxic stuff that's harmful to us as individuals, and frankly, to our future as a functioning democracy. But you'll hear us disagree a fair amount about what to do about it. Here in the United States, the First Amendment puts really strong protections around speech and heavily limits what the government can do to regulate any of it, even outright lies, as we saw with both COVID and the 2020 election. But because there's so much stuff on the internet that people do want taken down, a number of strategies to get around the First Amendment have cropped up. For example, there's one law that is really effective at regulating speech on the internet copyright law. Filing a DMCA claim on something is one of the fastest ways to get it removed from the internet. And there's a whole folk understanding of copyright law, which is often wrong, that has sprung up in the creator economy. For example, Larry and I talked about the current and recurring controversies around React videos on YouTube. Not what they are, but what that controversy represents. The users of a platform trying to establish their own culture around what people can and cannot remix and reuse. 
their own speech regulations based in copyright law. That is a fascinating cultural development. There is a lot of approaches to create these kinds of speech regulations that get around the First Amendment. And I wanted to know how Larry felt about that as someone who has been writing about speech on the internet for so long. His answers really surprised me. Of course, we also had to talk about AI. You'll hear us pull apart two different kinds of AI that are really shaping our cultural experiences right now. There's algorithmic AI, which runs the recommendation engines on social platforms and tries to keep you engaged. And then there's the new world of generative AI, which everyone agrees is a huge risk for the spread of misinformation, both today and in the future, but which no two people quite seem to agree on how to tackle. Larry's thoughts here were surprising. Maybe, he says, we just need to get all of politics offline if we're going to solve this problem. This conversation is full of twists and turns. I came away with so much to think about. And like I said, it's pretty loose. Professor Lessig just agreed to come hang out with me at the last minute, and we just talked about it. Maybe we should do all of our decoders like this. Okay, Professor Lawrence Lessig, here we go. Lawrence Lessig, you are a professor of law at Harvard Law School. You've written a lot about copyright law, a lot of which I read when I was a young law student. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to talk to you. We are here at Harvard, uh, which just launched the Applied Social Media Lab, which is intended to study the future of social media and its interaction with democracy. There's a lot of ideas to unpack there. Really quickly, tell us what the lab is meant to do and your involvement in it. I think what's important is how it wants to do it. So what the lab is going to do is bring people from industry, not, you know, loaned from industry, but people who have kind of left industry, who have decided they want to try to do good in the world, into the context of Harvard Law School, where we'll have policy people engaging with technology people, architecting how we could build a better social media and of course, social media means uh, media generally. So yeah. how we can take what has turned into a really poisonous soup and filter it into something that might actually be helpful for democracy. There's a few things happening right now in that soup that are new, one of which is AI, which I want to talk about. Another is two different wars and two different fronts that are defined by mis- and disinformation at scale. And a third is what feels to me like a generational reset of how we think about social media at large. We came through the Facebook era. We went through the, what you might call the Twitter era. The Twitter era is definitively over. It is now a different company with a different mm -hmm. name. And it feels like a younger generation is looking at social media differently. They've been raised with different expectations. All of that feels like, well, we've been at this for over a decade should we try something new or is something meaningful finally going to change? Do you feel that as well? Absolutely. I think that the worst part of social media's uh, place in society is people not understanding, in fact, what it is. Like people have a naive view. They open up their X feed or their Facebook uh, feed, and they're just getting stuff that's given to them in some kind of neutral way. Not recognizing that behind what's given to them is the most extraordinary intelligence that we have ever created, AI, that is extremely good at figuring out how to tweak the attitudes or emotions of the people they're engaging with to drive them down rabbit holes of engagement. The only thing they care about is engagement. 
And so, you know, the Facebook files, which um, two years ago were released by Frances Haugen, I was honored to be able to represent her at the first stages of that. If you look at the Facebook files, they are filled with engineers, really good engineers, trying to do the right thing, trying to talk about how to make the platform safer so it doesn't, like, lead young girls to commit suicide or doesn't lead to radicalism in, the, in, in politics. And again and again, they were overruled by people who were focused on the business model of engagement to drive profits. And I think once you step back and you realize, wow, all of this is being fed to me for a reason, and the reason really has nothing to do with making democracy work better or helping me understand the world better. It's all about using me for an end that is not my own end. And the AIs that are doing it are the most powerful intelligence that has ever tried to do this. Um, and it's terrifying when you realize it because not clear what we do about it. So there's a lot to unpack there, right? There's the commercial incentives of the social media platforms. There is the notion that we should regulate them in some way. There's the emergence of new technology, which might be hard to understand for even the technologist, let alone the average person. Let's start with that middle bit, how we might regulate it. In countries around the world, in, in Europe in particular, in China most particularly, the governments just go ahead and regulate the social media networks, right? They, they do not have the restrictions on speech regulations that we have in this country with the First Amendment. We keep trying to get around it, right? There's like a number of ways our government tries to get around it. Uh, lately, it seems like you can just be Republican and pass some speech regulations in, in Texas and Florida, and we'll just see how that goes. You can ban some books. You might do what's called jawboning, where the, the Biden administration put a lot of forceful pressure on Facebook and other platforms that got themselves in trouble, but they did it. Um, or you, you could use other laws, right? You could use copyright law, which is a frequent stand-in for speech regulations because everyone kind of accepts it. Is that an appropriate approach? Like, we can't just do it straight up because of the First Amendment, so we'll find other ways to do it. So it's first important to be clear about the first part of what you said, mm -hmm. which I think is really important, and that is the way other countries are actually doing it. Uh, you know, so in China, which obviously is not a political system to be recommended, but we can observe <laughs> that there's a Chinese version of TikTok and there's an American version of TikTok. And the American version of TikTok is completely uncontrolled. It runs all the time. It feeds the worst possible content to especially young people to drive them to engage. The Chinese version of TikTok is blocked during certain hours. It limits the total amount of time you're allowed to be on it. The substance of what it provides is like aiming to like lead people to want to be astronauts. You know, if you ask our kids what their number one dream job is, it's being a social influencer. If yeah. you ask the Chinese kids, it's being an astronaut. That's not an accident. That's not like the free market working. That is an intentional design decision um, that they're making towards helping their kids and we're making towards giving up. But I, I, I would say if you went and asked a bunch of parents in America, should the government pass some speech regulations yeah. that makes our TikTok look more like Chinese TikTok? And then you describe those outcomes. They would say yes. Yeah. And then you would have to say, well, we can't because yeah. of the First Amendment. Yeah. And that seems like a really important tension that we are facing right, right now. Even like among my own colleagues, you know, we have this conversation about how should the First Amendment be applied in this context. I mean, let, let's, let's take a very uh, precise example. Imagine China invaded Taiwan tomorrow and immediately started amplifying all the American voices on TikTok that were saying that, 
Taiwan had it coming. China's the natural leader for this area. It's ridiculous that we've been resisting one China for so many years. And suppressed all the American voices on that platform that were saying, um, this is outrageous, this is a free people, blah, blah, blah. That decision to suppress and amplify is what we call editorial judgment. It is the core of First Amendment protection. So when you say, could we do anything about it? The standard First Amendment answer is, no, there's nothing you could do about that. That's absolutely the most protected thing you could have. And, you know, it's amazing to see how we slid to this position of being vulnerable in this way. If in 1960, the Soviet Union had come to the FCC and said, we'd like to open up a news station in the United States um, for Americans to consume in the United States, the FCC, of course, would have blocked it. But we've moved to a place where we have no capacity, no legal capacity to do anything about this kind of influence, with the consequence being that we are so incredibly vulnerable. And um, the First Amendment, you know, is basically going to knock down um, most of these experiments that are happening within the states. What saddened me the most about this, you know, when Francis Haugen originally testified in the fall of 2021, there was a uh, a wide range of agreement among Republicans and Democrats. This was a huge problem. We needed to do something about it. And then AOC did her first TikTok. And her first TikTok was rejecting the idea that the United States government should do something to respond to TikTok. And her basic argument was, it's unfair to do something to TikTok when we still have not passed any privacy legislation in the United States, which first of all demonstrated she didn't understand anything about the nature of the problem. And number two, demonstrated that money has gone into the Democratic Party in a way to divide the two parties when it comes to social media and how, what we do about social media. So the First Amendment, of course, is an important barrier. But even more important than the First Amendment is the fact that the economy of influence that's governing in this space is an economy of influence of money. So wait, then, I'm more cynical about this than you are. Maybe even more cynical than you wow, suggest. Wow, kind of hard to believe. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty cynical about the, the bipartisan nature or the supposed bipartisan nature of wanting to regulate Facebook. What I see is a bunch of politicians on both sides who know the First Amendment exists, who can't just go ask the platforms for content moderation that would favor their party. So whenever they see a weapon, like the Haugen papers, uh, the Facebook files, they say, oh, we can just threaten you with legislation that may or may not pass, but we'll, we'll threaten you with yeah, it and that'll true. be a lawsuit and that'll be a long process for you to to go fight it and the public opinion will be against you. Or you can just change your rules. You can just moderate content to favor the Republicans or favor the Democrats. I see that cycle play out over and over and over again. And it, it to me, it appears to be wholly in bad faith, Yeah. right? The, the First Amendment exists. No one wants to go litigate whether the government should make speech regulations. But can we go threaten a bunch of these companies with pretend legislation or manufactured outrage because of what has been leaked? Sure we can. And then maybe they'll they'll turn the knobs and amplify our content more. That cycle seems to be more dangerous than almost anything, right? Because it is effectively speech regulation in 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 practical impact on these companies without any sort of oversight or any check on how how much it might be imposed. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what happened in 2016 and in 2020. Indeed, the Facebook files demonstrated that though, you know, for example, conservatives said that they were being discriminated against by these platforms. Mm -hmm. In fact, the interventions from the political department of Facebook overwhelmingly were interventions to bend the rules in favor of allowing conservatives to do whatever they wanted on the platform. So you're right. That dynamic was certainly what happened in that, in that election. 2024, it will be that plus order of magnitude greater danger 
produced by foreign governments that have targeted the United States in this election. Like, you know, there are all sorts of stories of the Russians in 2016 and 2020. The Chinese in 2024 have all, it's already revealed this is what they're doing. The first round will be the Taiwanese elections in January of 24, where they have already begun to figure out how they can flood that space to create disinformation, to tilt the election in the way that they want to tilt it. But that's just a dry run. Um, In fact, the technology they're using will work better in America than it does in Taiwan because it turns out the AI is better tuned to English than it is to the Taiwanese version of Chinese. Um, And so we will be completely vulnerable to something that has as its purpose screwing up our election. Look, you know, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't hate America. Facebook wasn't trying to destroy American democracy. It was just trying to make money. But now you'll have even more sophisticated AI focused like a laser on blowing up the basic institutions of our democracy. And the mechanism of this AI or the expression of this AI in your mind is specifically TikTok. It's the algorithms behind things like TikTok, but it's also, more importantly, the content generation capabilities that LLMs will, will give them. So, you know, the LLM capability to mislead people into believing that they are engaging with certain people about certain things, that they've seen a certain speech by Obama or a speech by Biden or a speech by Trump. All of these things that we don't have any defense mechanism for right now. We'll just flood into the system. You know, think of it like pathogens. Like they will just spread pathogens throughout the system and we have no antibodies for them. And we, as you're pointing out, because you're obviously legally educated, we also have a constitutional barrier to building those uh, antibodies or at least the government taking steps to build those antibodies. And the most dominant platforms for facilitating the spread of information have basically given up. You know, I'm not sure what Facebook will actually do in 2024. They back and forth about it. But Elon Musk has fired the election team. I mean, you know, that platform alone is like terrifying from its effect of what it's going to do for misunderstanding in this context. Assuming it's still there by the time. Assuming, right. um, Something like that. Uh, But, you know, you know, this war in, in Israel right now, I think, is like a perfect example of this. Like the level of misinformation on both sides is astonishing. And yet you don't see people reacting in a healthy way. It's not like you see them like shifting to sources that uh, will help them understand. Instead, they're doubling down on the sources that help them to misunderstand. I think one of the most startling facts that of the past uh, you know, three years, after January 6th, a bunch of polling reported in January of 2021 um, found that 70% of Republicans believed uh, Donald Trump that the election was stolen. And when that number came out, everybody was saying, well, you know, that's that's just temporary. They'll, they'll, they'll get it. Like, eventually, they'll just kind of relax. That was, that was always wishful thinking yeah, in my mind. Right. Yeah. And it went down a little bit, but it's now come back up. And, you know, if we were, like, talking about the Soviet Union, and you said, well, you know, in the Soviet Union, they believe that America caused uh, the war in whatever, um, and they still believe that completely false fact, we'd say, yeah, well, that's because you got state-run media. Well, we don't have state-run media here, but you can still perpetrate an obvious lie, and that stays, and that's not just stays, it gets embedded into the identity of the people who consume that media, and not accidentally, both because the business model of social media is engagement, and it turns out the politics of hate is the most effective way to get people to follow, um, and also because they're strategic bad actors who are 
very good at leveraging and using the platform. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Support for Decoder comes from Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Whether you're seeking a location for your podcast, teaching language classes, or selling handcrafted ceramics, Squarespace has all the tools you need to create a home on the web. You can create a polished, professional place that connects people with whatever it is you're excited about. Squarespace also supports all forms of connecting with those people, whether you're selling products online or in person or offering memberships. You can make your website look exactly how you want it. They even have tools to help you create a custom logo. And they make it easy to create a place for people to schedule an appointment with you, browse your services, or learn more about why you do what you do. Visit squarespace.com slash decoder for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code DECODER to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back with Professor Lawrence Lessig talking about the algorithms that power social media and how they're used to spread lies and misinformation. There's the AI-powered recommendation algorithms that a normal consumer encounters when they use a platform. So there, I think you have a TikTok problem, right? The Chinese government is entangled with TikTok in, in some way that is meaningful or not. It's actually very hard to know, uh, but they are definitely entangled with ByteDance, which owns TikTok. And people might encounter those recommendation algorithms. Those are obviously opaque. Everyone's pages are similarly opaque, so there's not even a shared cultural context behind right. the algorithms everyone is experiencing there. That's one bit of regulation. And you can see that the, the government might be able to fumble its way towards a theory of banning or restricting TikTok or forcing a sale to Oracle, all these ideas that they've tried, right? This is a foreign actor. They have built a distribution channel to millions upon millions of young Americans. We should probably take a look at that. You can see how the government could wind its way to the Supreme Court and potentially win on some theory of restricting that platform. The other part of it, oh, there's a bunch of LLMs in the world that can be used to make misinformation, and we should impose some sort of regulatory structure such that you can't just lie to people at scale. That runs head first into the First Amendment. Even if you're a foreign national in this country and you decide to use Google Bard to tell you a lie, that, that's fine. I can't figure out how to make that illegal. Can you figure out how to make that illegal? Uh, so let's talk about both. Yeah. I think it's nice that you unpack them that way. The TikTok issue is, I think, extremely hard. You know, Montana has 
basically passed a law to ban TikTok. Immediately, TikTok filed a suit challenging it, bringing a whole bunch of artists forward who said that their whole livelihood was TikTok. So therefore, it's the core of First Amendment protection. And I think it's going to be hard under the First Amendment. I mean, I actually volunteered to help Montana defend their law. But I think it's going to be hard. But even if you solve the foreign influence problem, you still haven't solved the business model problem. Because even if you know that China is not intentionally trying to screw with the elections, you still have a platform that's trying to figure out how do you make people spend more time on the platform. And it just is our psychology that the best way to do that is to turn us into conspiracy theorists who are crazy about all sorts of... Uh, I think, I just want to, I agree with you in that that is effective. I don't think it's the best way. And I would actually offer you one uh, very meaningful counterexample, which is I think Taylor Swift is a much more powerful figure in American culture and politics right now. And she's done the exact opposite, which is harder. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think it's cheaper and easier to make people angry, but yeah. it is more effective and more durable to absolutely, make people not angry. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, the question is if you are sitting there watching week by week uh, engagement numbers. Sure. Um, Taylor Swift invested a long time in building the brand that would make it so that she could be um, an oracle of something good and true. Um, and but, it's not. But I'm saying most durable art makes people feel good, not yeah, bad, right? Yeah. So I, I love what she's doing. She's a hero, not just because my <laughs> I'm daughter. I'm not asking you to criticize Taylor Swift. I'm just challenging your premise that the single most effective way to build engagement is anger. Yeah, but I would just say that, you know, the fact that you can point to Taylor Swift and I can point to everything in social media doesn't mean that I've lost the argument. I mean, you're right. Taylor Swift is a good example. Or um, Marvel movies. You can, you can pick any number of things that make people okay. generally feel good. Okay. Right? So, uh, so let's just recognize that's going to be a hard problem. And people feeling good doesn't, need, doesn't mean that they, f they know the truth. You know, there are a lot of people who believe uh, the, the big lie, who feel good about what they're doing. Like they're defending the truth, defending America against – and they're told that in a very positive way. So I'm not, I'm not saying Would that – Would you make that illegal? I, I, the thing that I'm stuck on here is, I, again, I came up reading your work, which was very much in favor of loosened speech regulations – and in particular, I yeah. think this, the stuff that you have published that has been most meaningful to me is the idea that the more we tend towards copyright maximalism, the more we sort of backdoor our way into speech regulations so that Disney is now in control of art because Disney has overwhelming copyright protection. It feels like you're arguing the flip now, that we actually need some more speech regulations, that we should find a way to regulate what is allowed on these platforms or what people are allowed to make with technology. That feels like a really big shift for you. I don't think it's a flip, but I wouldn't admit it's a flip, right? But I don't <laughs> feel like it's a flip. It feels like it's a different problem, yeah. right? So I don't favor the idea of speech regulations in the sense of the government deciding which speech is allowed and which it isn't. I think it's important, though, the government's allowed to address a new kind of problem. Algorithms are a new kind of problem. You know, some people say, when the algorithm decides to feed me stuff that makes me believe that vaccines don't work, that's just like the New York Times editors choosing to put certain things on the op-ed page or not. It's not. It's not at all like that. Like when the New York Times humans make that judgment, they make a judgment that's reflecting values and understanding of the world and what they think they're trying to produce. When the algorithm like figures out what to feed you so that you engage more because you believe vaccines don't work, that is not those humans. Um, and indeed, like the best <laughs> example of this is in 2017, in the fall of 2017, ProPublica published an article about how Facebook had a 
ad category called Jew haters. You could buy Jew haters as a category and advertise to Jew haters. And when ProPublica published this, Facebook was like, whoa, 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 we didn't do that. We didn't, there was no human that wrote that category. And that was true. It was the AI that generated that category. So the point is, we've got to break the tyranny of analogical reasoning here. Yeah, it's like the editor at the New York Times, but it is not the editor at the New York Times. And if you do that, then you can begin to see that we need to have a capacity to respond to this new kind of threat, which is different from, I think, the traditional issues that we were talking about in the context of, in the context of copyright. That was the TikTok issue. The second, uh, remind me about the second one because I thought that was really interesting. The, the, that we should be uh, a foreign national in this country uses a, a chat GBT to tell a lie. Yeah, and that should be somehow restricted. Yeah. Um, the challenge there is, you're right, the foreign national— Let's go ahead. We'll just make the foreign national Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin shows up probably in Florida, and he opens up ChatGPT and says, tell some lies about the election. Yeah, yeah. That is almost certainly protected speech. Yeah, certainly protected speech. Although, remember that the D.C. Circuit, Brett Kavanaugh writing the opinion, affirmed without— dissent by the United States Supreme Court, upheld the idea that you could limit the ability of legal immigrants to spend money independently of a political campaign because we're trying to protect the American democracy to be a democracy that Americans choose. So there's a tension in the jurisprudence. On the one hand, you speak like Citizens United does. It says that the question is just the speech. And does the government have the right to regulate, quote, speech? It doesn't matter who's speaking. Scalia, when he wrote his concurrence in, in Citizens United, said, everybody's making a big deal about the fact that we're giving rights to corporations. It has nothing to do with it. The question is whether the government has a right to regulate the speech. Who cares who's uttering it? It could be a robot uttering the speech, you know, a replicant uttering the speech. It could be you <laughs> uttering the speech. I don't think that was in Citizens United, replicants. It should have been. I think, I think <laughs> it's a really important point. Um, but like, if you adopt that position, then you're right. There's nothing you can do about Vladimir Putin. Yeah. Um, but I don't think we're going to settle on that position. I think sure. we're going to settle on a position that begins to recognize we have a lot to do to protect democratic processes. And that's actually, you know, related to the work that we're doing at this new lab. Because, you know, there are a bunch of people out there like, how do we reform the media to make it so it's like our ideal of what the media should be? I think that's hopeless. I mean, God bless them and good luck. Um, I think we instead need to recognize that we need to protect democracy from the radiation of these AIs. Like, you know, think of it as if it's like a, like all of a sudden, you know, um, we, we and, can't protect. And just to be clear, this is the generative AIs, not the recommendation algorithm AIs. I think they're, they're, they're the same thing right now. I mean, they will be deployed hand in glove in order to achieve the objective of the person deploying. Walk me through that specifically, because I, I, I'm still stuck on the idea that if we're going to write some regulation, it should be, especially in the context of speech, it ought to be like strict scrutiny from the beginning, right? Very narrowly tailored. And that means you have to define the problem. Yeah. And so when you say hand in glove, it's there's going to be a bunch of weird generative AI created content about our election that gets fed through an AI yeah, recommendation I, I'll algorithm. Yeah, I'll But let's be yeah. clear about what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that enterprise of mm-hmm. like figuring out how to regulate media to solve that problem, I think is hopeless. Okay. We're not going to regulate media to solve that problem. Yeah. That problem is going to be there in some form, some 
metastasized, dangerous form, regardless of what regulation there is, even if we have creative ways of thinking about how to get around the First Amendment. But these two things work together because the the recommendation engine mm-hmm. is just very good at figuring out what people oh, sure. are open to. So you to. have a fire hose of AI-generated yeah, content, content, and the recommendation should, algorithm is going to— figuring out where to aim it, yep, right? Okay. And so my point is, like, okay, that's going to happen. We should recognize we can't do democracy in that space. Yeah. It's not going to work. And then we got to think about where can we rebuild democracy or what could it look like that was protected from that sort of thing? So one of the things that is happening around the world, completely invisible in American media, but one of the most interesting democratic innovations happening around the world is the explosion of things called citizen assemblies. France did one, a huge one around climate change. Ireland has done a whole bunch of them, including two that proposed ending regulations on abortion and endorsing um, same-sex marriage. They, Citizen Assembly came up with those solutions, overwhelmingly supported them. Then it went out to referendum. The public overwhelmingly supported them. We know that the politicians in Ireland could never have supported those two things, but these Citizen Assemblies could do it. There are hundreds in Japan. They're all through uh, Europe right now. There have been some tiny experiments in the United States, but not much. But the point about these Citizen Assemblies is that These are places where citizens confront each other. They're representative, like they're large and representative. They confront each other. They hear the other side. They see that the other side is not a bunch of, you know, reptiles. They're like ordinary humans (laughs) with the same issues. Like, how do I make sure my kid, you know, has a job after uh, high school? And when they experience that and they deliberate and they come up with some resolution of some issue, whatever it is that's being presented to them, it has been protected. It's almost like in a shelter from... These corrupt, you know, the corrupting influences of AI, whether foreign-dominated influences or even just commercial, you know, engagement influences. And what I think is that, you know, the more people see this, the more they'll be like, well, let's see more of this. Let's figure out how we can make this more of our democratic process. So what at the lab, um, we've just uh, are closing a deal to acquire a really powerful virtual deliberation platform. Um, that has been a proprietary platform and you know, charges a bunch of money for people to use it. We're going to open source it and we're going to make it available in every single context. So, you know, churches could use it, schools could use it, local communities could use it, a DAO could use it, you know, a game <laughs> could use it. You could be in the middle of a, you know, organizing your friends in a game in a clan and then you push the deliberation button, will be an API, it opens into a healthy deliberation context. We're doing this because we believe, first, we don't know how best to enable deliberation. Secondly, we think people out there do. And third, we think that when they do, they'll begin to think about this as another way to do democracy. And it would exercise a muscle of a kind of democratic relation to other people that we don't have right now. Like our democratic relation to other people is to hate the other side. The politics of hate is not just that we're polarized, it's that we have to turn into villains, people who are not the same political view as we as we are. So what I believe is that we're going to have to find a way to begin to build something different while at the same time, we're going to fight the war to make sure the media doesn't poison us too much. So, again, the, the radiation metaphor, I think, is really <laughs> powerful here. Like, you know, the skies open up and we're not protected from the, the UVs in the way we were before. We're going to have to go underground. We're going to have to have shades on. Um, and we're going to have to protect as much as we can. And not clear we're going to succeed. You know, I, I, it's hard to acknowledge exactly how terrifying these threats are. You know, the politics threat is one thing. 
a friend uh, report a conversation with one of the big media company, uh, one of the big AI companies, um, one of the senior developers at one of the big AI companies, who said, "My kids are not going to see high school." And what that statement was is that he thinks we're not going to be able to control what happens with AI. Like it's going, it is a existential threat that we will not uh, meet. And like when you realize exactly how dangerous these things are, and exactly how weak our capacity to do something collectively about it is, there's a lot of reason to be terrified about it. And that leads a lot, bunch of people to like say, well, whatever, I'll just spend my time watching you know, Netflix. Um, <laughs> it is interesting how much the AI doomers are also the people building the systems. Yes. Uh, a fascinating relationship. We'll be right back with more about one of the biggest challenges to come, generative AI. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We're back asking Professor Larry Lessig what he thinks about the wave of copyright lawsuits being filed against generative AI companies. There is one way that the current moment in AI could come to an end, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you specifically about it, uh, which is all of these LMs are built on vast amounts of training data scraped from the open internet. Who knows if that was appropriate or legal or authorized? There are a number of fair use cases pointed at these LM systems now. There's one against OpenAI. There's, uh, I believe, one coming against Google. If there isn't, there will be. I, I make that prediction, even if I don't know. They've got the most money. My colleague Sarah Jong says, it feels like this industry is built on a time bomb. This is a house of cards because no one knows the answer whether this copying was fair use or not. You're a copyright law professor. Yeah. Do you think it's fair use or not? So I have two strong views, and one is very surprising. So the mm-hmm. not surprising view... I have is that whether you call it fair use or not, using creative work to learn something, whether you're a machine or not, um, should not be a copyright event. Now, maybe we should regulate in another way. Maybe we should have like a compulsory license-like structure or some structure for compensation. I'm all for that. But the idea that we try to regulate AI through copyright law is crazy talk. 
but I mean, that's where we are right now. Yeah, I mean, that's what they're trying to do. It's always the first and fastest yeah, regulatory course. method. And it's got the most vigorous uh, um, uh, remedies. It's got the most money on the other side. Yeah, of it most too. money. Yeah. yeah. So I think all of this in the American context should be considered fair use. Is that a policy conclusion or a legal it's conclusion? It's a legal conclusion. I think that the run the fair use analysis, that's what you get. Um, and I th- even if you, what you've done, and I'll just like the Sarah Silverman case, I'll take it for example. They clearly took her entire book and they can clearly spit out excerpts of her entire book. And somehow in that, you, you run that analysis. I think that's a coin flip. And I, I look at sort of other fair, fair use of the courts right now feels like maybe more of a coin flip than ever before. There's a recent case that might make it more of a coin flip than mm-hmm. I would have thought. Uh, Kagan wrote a very strong dissent in the case. And so maybe that signals that copyright law is shifting in a new way. The question of like legal access to the underlying material is always there. So I'm saying if you have access to the underlying material- And that's where your machine scheme would come in. And I'm not even sure it's a licensing point. My point is, if it's out there in the world and somebody has legal access to it and they use it to learn- that's not a copyright event. Um, you know, reading a book is not a copyright event. Even though when you do it online, it technically copies. The whole point is it shouldn't be a copyright event because the equivalent, reading, is the sort of thing that was free. It was protected as free. Copyright was a narrow range of controls that we had to impose to create incentives for authors. And I don't think any of those controls are relevant to the context of the training. So I'm a very strong training is free. The view I have, which is surprising to people, is that, or people who know anything, you know, the 10 people in the world who know anything about my views. No, 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 I have to make sure I'm one of those um, people. Is that I absolutely think that when you use AI to create work, there ought to be a copyright that comes out of that. Um, Mm -hmm. So the um, copyright office has just sort of said no. Yeah, they've said no. What they've said is, Maybe if you have a complicated enough prompt, then you can get a copyright, which, you know, we used to say fair use was the right to hire a lawyer. Now copyright is the right to hire a lawyer because you're like, here's my prompt. Is that a copyright or not? When what we need is an efficient system to basically just allocate the uh, allocate the rights. Now, the tweak I would make, which I think is really critical, is I would say you get a copyright with these AI systems if and only if the AI system itself registers the work and includes in the registration provenance so that I know exactly who created it and when, and it's registered so it's easy for me to identify it. Because the biggest hole in copyright law, a so-called property system, is that it's the most inefficient property system known to man. Mm -hmm. We have no way to know who owns what. We have no way to know who to negotiate, with whom to negotiate. Certain entities love that, like the collecting rights societies. You know, they love the fact that it's impossible to know because then you've got to have these huge collective rights societies. But the reality is we could have a much more efficient system for identifying, quote, ownership. And I think AI could help us to get there. So I would say let's have a system where you get a copyright immediately, um, and so I push generative fill in Photoshop. Yeah. It immediately goes to the copyright office, says in some database, here's my picture I made in Photoshop. And here's how it was made and when it was made and what uh, fed into it. Like whatever the provenance has to be to make it useful. I'm not sure of that exactly. But if you began to do that, you would begin to build infrastructure of registries that would make it easier for us to begin to navigate in this context. The other reason to to push for this is that, you know, artists in the next 10 years are going to increasingly move to AI generation for their art. Okay. If you don't get copyright from that, then basically these people have almost no way to make any living. You'll remember this, I hope, from uh, copyright law. 
at the birth of America, foreign authors got no American copyright. Yeah. And all the Americans thought, this is great. We're protecting the Americans against the foreigners. But of course, what that meant is that all the English books were much cheaper than <laughs> the American books. So the American authors were at a disadvantage because the English authors weren't getting copyright. And the American authors began to push, give everybody copyright so that there's no unleveled playing field. Well, that's the same with this generative AI. If when I sit down and I make a creative work, I get a copyright, um, and you push a button on mid-journey and there's no copyright there, the people consuming that work, like businesses trying to build advertising, are going to stop dealing with the artists, they're going to just deal with the mid-journey, and they're going to get all this stuff for free that they can use in a commercial way that the artist uh, uh, before would have been Don't compensated for. the basic for. laws of supply and demand kind of get in the way well before the sort of copyright licensing cost. If I'm using mid-journey, I can make 10,000 images in the time it takes an artist to make their first cup of coffee. Right. And this is what I hear from artists and musicians, right? Our markets are about to get flooded with C-plus work because yeah. most of it's C-plus yeah. work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like most people don't care enough. But if you have enough supply of C-plus work, the mar the price of that will fall to zero. Yeah, I mean— And no one will ever pay us for A-plus work. And like well, whether or not, you know, paying me for A-plus work— comes with an appropriate copyright license or not seems pretty secondary to that basic economic problem. Well, I mean, think about photographs. The same dynamic happened with photography, right? In the old days when the only people who had cameras were professionals, quality of photographs was very good. Then all this consumer cameras and then digital cameras came along. So the number of pictures in the world went up dramatically and the quality of the average quality of them went down. Now you would say, did that mean that there wasn't a demand for professional photographers? Well, a lot of them went away. But, you know, there are still pretty good professional photographers who are hired for substantial amounts for their particular professional work. But my, my point, I think, is slightly different. All I'm saying is we need to have a world where everybody's on the level playing field. Every creative work is protected in some sense. And um, I just want to radically lower the cost of negotiating that protection. And if we radically lowered the cost of negotiating that protection, then— the best work would rise to the surface more easily, and you know people would be rewarded for having figured out how to produce that best work. I would say that, that knowing what I know of you, that is a surprising viewpoint. Do you feel like you'll end up in a place where copyright steps in, as it so often does, as another solution to other problems? Right? Providence, I want to know this is made by a person. Now there's a federal database that would tell me if it's a person or an AI, mm -hmm. and copyright will be the, the vehicle by which mm -hmm. this information is disseminated. It could be copyright. This actually relates to another part of a really great question you asked before that I think it's important to be clear about. You know, so when you were asking about AI in the context of elections and how are you ever going to control that stuff? Because there are all sorts of, you know, right now, proprietary AI, like open AI, has said you can't use this content for political speech. Mm -hmm. But we have all sorts of open source models out there that can use the content for political speech. And so one question is, can you do anything about that? And the answer is, absolutely, you could control American campaigns. Um, and people are not creative enough about how to control it. But for, if, for example, you made every treasurer of every campaign swear on the penalty of perjury that no money was spent for any AI-generated content in that campaign, you could uh, shut it down right away. But that still would leave you vulnerable to the foreign inf influence. Now, that's not to say that there shouldn't be something we do about it. We should do that, but the point is it will never be complete. And I think it's the same point with the provenance uh, uh, issue. There are so many fantastic databases out there that are 
being developed, blockchain databases mm -hmm. that would allow us to do much more in identifying like provenance and ownership of content. Um, and, and, and I think that if they are set up so that the Copyright Office could recognize them, that would be the best of both worlds. And we don't want the Copyright Office doing it because no government agency is <laughs> going to have the capacity to do it in the creative ways that it's being done right now. But we, we need to get to a place where that is easier. And I think the market could drive us there more effectively than the copyright lawsuits because copyright applied to provenance claims is going to be a really hard thing to enforce. I think the blockchain people are desperate for Des a use case something. that looks like That's this. Right. Right? Anything, anything other than what they got now. <laughs> I want to end kind of more in the weeds on something. I started by saying it feels like a reset moment on the internet. Like the platforms are shifting, user behavior is shifting. A thing that has jumped out to me, maybe more than anything, is that younger people on the internet are so deeply aware of copyright law in a way that my generation wasn't beyond getting sued for using Napster. That was basically our interaction with copyright law. Right now on YouTube, there is a controversy over so-called React videos, where one creator makes a video, a bigger creator reacts to that video, adds nothing other than some faces potentially, and then they get all the views, right? And this is fine or not fine, but actually within the creator sphere on YouTube, the notion that this is a copyright violation and something should be done and this is wrong and they're going to reach to copyright law is very strong, right? There's actually a copyright maximalism amongst younger creators that is shocking to me. Mm. Do you see that there's like a new kind of folk private copyright law where because speech regulations are definitely against sort of the American idea, we're going to substitute in our folk wisdom about what copyright can or should be. We're going to say fair use like a magical incantation to claim moral superiority and, and have a fight. Does, that seems all very, like, wrong to me. Like, something bad is about to happen here. Yeah. Because we're, again, we're, we're once again training people to talk about regulating speech without actually talking about regulating speech. Yeah. I, I think it's actually a reaction to a very bad implementation that YouTube made of the original effort to protect copyright uh, owners from piracy uh, on YouTube. Mm -hmm. So, you know, YouTube set up this very complicated, I mean, not complicated, but it's a very sophisticated content identification system to be able to identify content. And then if you, content is identified, then you can either demonetize the site that's doing it or order the site to take it down. And that created both a war for legitimate uses. So for example, I gave a bunch of speeches that included music and the label did a takedown. Yep. Um, and my speeches were speeches about copyright law using these as examples <laughs> that I wanted to like demonstrate what the law was. And they issued a takedown to me and YouTube was like very automatic about it. I fought back and they eventually threatened me and then I sued them and got them to Liberation Music to agree that they weren't going to play this game anymore. But of course, everybody plays that game where they're issuing takedowns yeah. to everybody. And, but that created this really perverse incentive for people to basically create complete ripoffs of other people's work and then just use the same mechanism to go after them. And these were all complete fraudsters. I mean, there are people who take public domain work, they put it up, and then they use this registration system to say, these other people producing the public domain work are violating my copyright, and the machine's not smart enough to be able to do anything about it. And so this, I think, has created an economy of what feels to me like real piracy, because these are not creators who are trying to do something creative, remixing in some interesting way. They're just trying to exploit the system to steal from others. Um, and that 
reaction creates a counter-reaction, which is, I think, the culture you've identified. Yeah. I'm not sure how we get beyond it, other than like a more sophisticated, or commitment by platforms like YouTube to be more sophisticated in this policing about like what's actually going to be allowed as a remix and protected as a remix and what isn't. Um, and if they were actually aggressively policing that in the way that's consistent with the values of copyright, I don't think it would be triggering the kind of anger that's being triggered on the other side. I'm just as angry if I see somebody like take creative work and just put like a smiley face on it and then sell that or try to monetize that. That's totally wrong. But I think everybody should be able to agree that we should be allowed to take creative work and comment on it or critique it or use it to, like, I, I love the the people who try to teach guitar and they find that they have a certain, you know, two or three notes that then triggers this reaction and their whole site gets mm-hmm. uh, demonetized because it's it particularly bad in music. I know a lot of music podcasters, for example, who just like won't put their work on YouTube. And music is, quite frankly, one of the worst areas for fair use. I mean, This you is know, what radicalized me, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if you try to get the equivalent of like text and music and film is the same, you know, the freedoms that we take for granted in the context of text just don't exist in the context of music and don't exist in the context of, uh, uh, in the same way in the context of film. They could. What's necessary is the courts or maybe Congress to kind of tilt it in a direction to try to achieve a kind of common recognition Mm -hmm. of fair use across these platforms. But instead, there's been conventions set by industries that were long before the internet that creates these expectations. That but, so this is happening right now. YouTube is entering into deals, uh, particularly universal music, where they're going to invent some private copyright law on the platform to deal with AI. So there was an AI artist on YouTube that sounded like Drake. It's a big scandal. Universal got very mad about it. YouTube has basically said, we're going to invent some stuff for you. So that if there's AI that sounds like Drake, we'll let you take it down. That's not in any federal law that I can find or any decision that I can find yet. It hasn't been litigated. It's not really in any state law outside of likeness. So you basically have a private copyright law to one platform for the benefits of the the music label. You could argue that that is an appropriate sort of market solution to this problem. But it feels like we should probably actually have a law. Where where do you think that, that lands? It could be a market solution, assuming we're not having an antitrust issue involved. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not sure I would assume that right now. Um, With YouTube specifically. Yeah, with YouTube and some of these labels, right? So, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for the artists who are anxious about the fact that their style is taken and used in a particular way. And AI is obviously making this easy, trivial. And that's why I said at the beginning, I think there might be sui generis ways to compensate for for that sort of consequence. But I think what we need is a vigorous debate on both sides of it. And what we saw in the early internet was that, you know, most of the loudest, most important um, forces were coming from the maximalist control perspective. And that was a mistake. It was a mistake for artists. You know, I remember like 20 years ago, artists were convinced that this campaign of copyright extremism would uh, produce an internet that would be profitable for artists. Well, you know, ask artists how much they get from <laughs> Spotify today. Um, yeah. um, so it's actually worked against the interests of artists. And I think that if we had had a healthier debate back then, more open, less kind of moralistic, like there were criminals on one side, pirates on one side, um, and believers in property on the other, we could have come up with a better solution. And I hope that we have, well, I mean, I don't actually hope, I don't think there's any hope for this at all, but what we ought to be having <laughs> is a more healthy debate about that today. I think that's all we can hope for. Professor Lessig, thank you so much for being on Decoder. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
I'd like to thank Professor Lawrence Lessig for taking the time to join me on Decoder. Like I said, last minute, but he killed it. I'd also like to thank Harvard for hosting us and thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. I read all the emails. You can hit me up directly on threads. I'm at Reckless1280. And we have a TikTok. You can check it out. It's at DecoderPod. It's a lot of fun. Now, this week, the TikToks are all at Harvard, so the video looks really good. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Kate Cox and Nick Statt. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.